this morning, I realized that the big question, I think, when you're moving from uh, a lifetime of writing nonfiction to fiction, is that you're moving from the question of what is or what was to the question of what if. I think that's probably the, the tidiest way I can break it down so that some of those uh, little junction points in thought that Imelda's already touched upon, sometimes when you're bedding yourself down into writing fiction, um, it is, it's that opportunity to actually say, well, <clears throat> what if? What if this happened? So I'm going to try and explore that theme a little bit today. Um, uh, for a book that is very much rooted in landscape, historical events, and, and using some historical figures. But it's still, I, I hope, um, well, I know is a work of fiction, particularly uh, the life of the third character, um, who um, certainly uh, has a some, somewhat different trajectory from the author in his life. Um, I want to actually uh, cover the reasons for choosing fiction rather than non-fiction. Um, I want to refer to some of the debts that I have to earlier research projects and um, perhaps make a few links to fiction in New Zealand uh, and occasionally elsewhere that might have had some sort of influence or impact upon the way in which I chose to do this book, Coast. Um, I've always been interested in the relationship between culture and nature and for me that's about conservation of environment, the relationship between people and the land and resource management politics and I've also done quite a lot of work in the treaty area as well over the years. Um, so I'm interested in how landscapes shape us as people um, and I suppose that has been a kind of a theme through uh, quite a lot of the work that I've done and perhaps particularly the Huanganui history um, woven by water. Just very briefly, this uh, novel has three intercutting voices in it. So there's a, a first generation a grandfather figure, if you like, who's from Scotland, arriving around about uh, 1908 in New Zealand, coming to a, a community, a Scottish community uh, in the Rangitike as a ploughman. So he's a man of the land. And the second voice is that very much of my father, that's the most um, non-fictional aspect of the book. And then there's this third character, the generation uh, that comes after the war. And the theme that links them all together is the land and the effects of war on, on three generations. Um, I'm now going to just read you one passage from the book, if you can bear with me, because I think it helps to set up what I'm going to, to be discussing today. So this is the, the migrant grandfather figure about whom I knew almost nothing, perhaps about half a dozen points when I set out to, to write this book. We knew very little about him because he died from war wounds from World War I when my father was six. So uh, I've, I, uh, I will talk a little bit more about that soon. Um, so here's the quote. Uh, he's, he's just a recently arrived in the Rangitike district and he's gone down to the river at Turakina, which is a place very familiar to me, and um, has had a few more visitors since um, I wrote the book, I, as I gather. 
and um, he has this encounter with the river. So remember, he's a man of the land. Um, he knows about uh, river landscapes because he comes from the east coast of Scotland, near um, in, in Kincardineshire, which is just south of Aberdeen. And he's in a landscape that, uh, I'll talk a little bit more about this later, that is incredibly, uh, not, not the same as, but very much like the, the uh, river that he grew up very close to, as I was to discover, uh, the Esk River, which is also a, was a very mobile river along that coastline, uh, the way that the Turkina River is in the dune country um, of the Rangitike. As I approached the bank, the sound of rushing water was stronger. Coming across a line of low dunes, I found the river, which last time was a footling thing, but now in full spate almost half a mile across. It was unbelievable, an altogether different animal. That's from last time. It brimmed along the line of dunes that were its banks and tore into them like a boar into a loaf of bread. As I watched, <clears throat> a whole cliff of sand, it must have been at least three coal wagons full, got the runs above the bouncing water line and toppled into the river with a loud shush. Had I been standing there, I would have gone too. The river was moving in such a spate, it was menacing, a chocolate-coloured wild animal that could not be contained. Across the width of the river floated an assortment of driftwood, much of it living trees just a few hours earlier. In the main current, a large tree trunk, complete with branches and leaves, hurtled down the roadstead like a runaway cart. Willows bobbed everywhere, freshly sawn timber and solid squared bridge stays strewed the surface. Some of this material was turning end over end in the flood. Battens, strainer posts, and tangles of fence wire went shuddering past. Whole farms undone. Occasionally I saw, too, the dark shapes of cattle beasts, bloated bellies upwards, the bailiffs of bankruptcy, we called them at home. Then, in the mid, in the mid distance, I could see something out of the ordinary that had been snatched by the flood. It was bobbing and juddering towards me, with sharp outlines that came round the far bend of the river. At first I couldn't make it out. It seemed rectangular, a farm bothy maybe, rearing up above the lunging logs with their quivering branches. <clears throat> As it drew nearer, it was quite plain, an intact Māori worry, coming down the flooded river. I recognised it, for I'd seen one or two. In fact, I'd passed one earlier that day on the track out to this beach. The house bore carvings either side of the door with an iron roof and floorboards still intact and it nodded down the river headed for the sea. It must have come from a riverbank site further upstream. I couldn't understand how it stayed upright, shaking but almost regal. I came to a stop, dumbstruck, as I watched it sail out towards the ocean like some river craft from Egyptian times. I won't carry on any further, but he gets to meet some of the tangata whenua who are connected to that house just as, uh, as it's heading out to sea. And when I, I wrote that passage probably before I wrote anything else, that, that section, the whole section, and when I'd written it I thought, I do believe I can actually write, write a piece of fiction because it was entirely made up. Um, I hadn't seen that idea anywhere else before. I think Peter Carey has a, an image in a book that he wrote, um, which is not 
completely dissimilar from that, but I swear that this image came out of my experience and not his. Um, and the reason why I was prompted to write it with confidence was based on the work I'd done in, over the years in landscape um, and, and the awareness that I developed that as the forests of New Zealand came down with the colonisation of the country by Pākehā, that a number of Māori uh, meeting houses on rivers in areas that I knew quite well had been moved to higher ground as a, as a precaution against something like this actually happening. So there's, there's, there's that sort of connection between what, what one knows and then that kind of leap that one uh, Given, given the right permissions um, might take in order to actually um, create something fictional. But I also felt that um, having written that passage uh, that I could carry on, it, it provided so many questions. Um, who were these people? Where did the house come from? Why were they upset about what happened? Uh, so upset about what happened to their house. And and this, this man trying who's only been here for a few weeks, trying to make sense of this landscape that, he, that seems to be somewhat familiar, but in fact is um, much more violent than probably what he would have known. Um, and of course it's that, um, it's that response of the New Zealand landscape to, to what we've done to it, which is part of our, our story as a nation. Now, I'm just going to penetrate this, this image a little bit further because um, I have a very good friend who lives in Australia now who it's appropriate to say that he was a very good cameraman. He became a director for ABC and these days uh, for a living he makes concertinas. Um, those things are all relevant because he's actually got a very, um, very particular kind of mind. There are 250 parts that he makes for every concertina that he sells. <laughs> okay, that said. Um, he said to me, he rang me up one day and he said, oh, I've given up on this novel. <laughs> I said, why? He said, that meeting house that came down the river, he said, well, did that house have floorboards? <laughs> I said, no. Oh, yes, I said, yes, it had floorboards, yes. Um, it wasn't traditional, it had been built in the 1880s, as we discover later in the book. He said, were the were the, the Totra posts for its foundations attached to it? I, I said, um, I said I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Oh, they probably were. He said, you know that when you actually built houses in the 1880s that you scarfed the floorboards into the Totra foundation. You did know that, didn't you? I said, no, I didn't actually. <laughs> anyway, he... On the, he then um, went on uh, and read something else where he sort of did the same kind of level of interrogation and found me wanting this time and gave up reading the book. Um, so there are, you know, there are amazing perils to these flights of fancy that, that one can take, but some of them you would never know unless you were the sort of mind that could put, you know, make and put 250 pieces together into a concertina. <laughs> But I, I do think there are two ways of reading reading novels, and and some people do. You've got to you've got to get as much right as you possibly can. Um, but some people tolerate. Um, there's a point at which they take that leap with you, 
and there are others who stay standing on the riverbank saying, well, you know, you didn't scarf the, those um, totra posts properly. And I do, I do think this is a, a fascinating kind of question because I don't think that, um, I think research is really important for this kind of novel. But there is obviously a, a human limitation to how much you can actually do. I have said this before, but it's possibly worth repeating that I, I think that the difference between writing a, a factual book and a piece of fiction is, a, is the difference actually between um, uh, if it's fiction, it's base jumping, and if it's um, um, non-fiction, it's parachuting. I think that the, the risks of um, writing non-fiction, you can do something reasonably well and it'll still kind of get through. But the possibilities of kind of having a, a terrible end to your base jump um, with fiction are, are, are very real. I think it's much easier to actually um, come unstuck uh, or to open the chute too late or, or whatever. And so I, th I, th I think that's part of that flight of imagination image being pushed a little bit further. Um, so why, why did I go for fiction? I think part of the reason was that I, I am very much um, attracted to the big picture always and um, I, I had been kind of thinking for quite some time that it was would be useful to someone like me to have a go at writing about the relationship between fathers and sons and I I don't know that um, I really wanted to write a memoir about that um, I also wanted to bring, once I thought, yes, I want to write about this, I thought you could you could set it in a certain landscape, and I know that landscape in, in Turakina, and then I, you know, as I worked on this idea of war and men and how, because I think the war thing does affect our relationships with our fathers, or certainly did until relatively recently, over most of the 20th century. And then I thought, you know, because I'm interested in untold stories, that because my father had served in the Pacific in the Air Force as a, an aircraftsman, uh, an engineer working on aircraft, that th those, that was a story that um, probably could do with a bit more airing because I think notwithstanding the wonderful work of Alison and some of her colleagues that the war in the Pacific is still somewhat of an unknown war compared with what we know about what happened uh, in Europe. Um, and I also had this, been wanting to sort of say something about the effect of um, Scots on New Zealand, on the New Zealand character that was something other than the Otago thing. Everybody thinks Scots and they think Otago in the main. And this was a chance I thought, well, I could probably bring these elements in together. And they were all sort of somewhat untold stories in, a, in an untold landscape because I'm not aware of very much that's been written in fiction uh, in that Rangitike kind of area at all and it is to, my, to me it's a, it's a marvellous landscape although probably more marvellous as a child to me than it is now it's a little bit more tamed by Maram and things like that it's not quite so dynamic I do think that um, the possibility of a memoir I touched on that a moment ago that memoirs are for people who've had very full lives you know, as, as the literary or heroic figures and so on. And I, I'm not sure that, that that's something I um, would want to have had a crack at. So again, it's writing about ordinariness and, and trying to fictionalise that and keep it alive. Um, and I wanted to, I did want to kind of get 
my father involved um, and when I took the tape recorder and said look I want to interview you which is what we all do around here most of us um, he did half an hour and he said oh I think I want to write something myself and um, so <laughs> now he left school at 14 and, um, and he started writing um, by hand and I could see that he was kind of getting excited about this, so I gave him my old electronic typewriter, and I finished up with two ring binders of of what of his childhood and and everything. He loved doing it, and he used to start writing his letters on this typewriter as well. Um, and and it was very detailed. He had a very clear memory. He's just passed away this year, but um, so there was a sort of social history that was kind of emerging from from the the memories of a man born in 1918 whose father had died when he was six and he said gone right through the depression and then he'd gone through the war in the Pacific and you know his early life was quite interesting as well I thought so um, I was um, very glad to, to have that as a sort of something to work on and I thought it's funny about these sort of gifts that you get in, in literature because I think for non-fiction writers who coming to coming to fiction that um, something like that actually presents a huge challenge because um, <laughs> it's all there isn't it and all you have to do is really um, work it into some kind of a narrative that's readable well you have to try and do more than that when it's fiction and um, so it was I couldn't have done this kind of particular book the way I did it without him but on the other hand um, that was the most difficult thing I had uh, to do in writing the book, apart from dealing with the sort of emotional stuff that, that had gone on between us, uh, especially when I was younger. Um, I also, you know, there was one other reason why I wanted to, um, to write fiction, and that was I, I actually think that so much of New Zealand fiction is, is dark, and um, I actually wanted to sort of write something fictional, if I could, that um, kind of shed some shafts of light into <laughs> into our existence as well. So I guess that was that was another motivation. Now <clears throat> the there is this other landscape in the book which is that of uh, of Scotland, uh, the man's area uh, of Kincardenshire, which is not a place that not many people go to because most people go to the Highlands and uh, and yet this is a very beautiful part of the world. And um, the first time I went there was, was actually in 1999, and I went with the intention of actually putting together, or doing some research for the novel. Um, what, what struck me Im immediately about this uh, place where he'd come from, which was sort of just near Montrose, if any of you know that area, it's an old, an old town built on um, slavery and tobacco I think it, it's got you can see the remnants of these grand old houses and closes and so on um, right on the sea and uh, it, on one side is a large estuary uh, which Turakina Beach certainly had at some times and then uh, and that estuary has now become a very important wildlife reserve and then on the other side of it along the coast is a natural history reserve which is full of wildflowers and dozens of kinds of, of, of wild birds um, in the dunes and what struck me about this place probably because of the dunes and the, the estuarine nature of it was how, how at home 
uh, this person, my grandfather, must have felt coming to Turakina Beach and um, seeing this place, even though it lacked the grandeur and uh, permanence of of what was there in Montrose and stone buildings and so on. But so much of it was reminiscent of that area, and I've checked with one or two Scots about it. So that that's this. Where are we? There. That's. Um, this is Turakino, which I should have introduced you to before. Montrose has got cliffs at the back of it, and then there's old churches and villages up on the, on the cliffs. And there's, there are huts um, along the front of Montrose. I decided not to bring too many encumbrances today, but they're old um, uh, fishing bothies, as they call them, in the dunes. And um, so, yeah, there's, there was just this amazing connection once I'd sort of set flight in this way um, which really did excite me and I it's a lovely place to be if you're in Scotland and you you like um, wildlife bird life um, it's a lovely part of the world to go in, in summer anyway um, there was a point I wanted to make uh, about knowing very little about my grandfather I said how difficult it was to um, deal with the, this great pile of stuff my, my father presented which had some wonderful lines in it. Um, I mean, I think if he hadn't had to leave school at 14, he could easily have taken a path similar to, to what I had taken. And I'm not sure you ever realised that. Um, whereas my grandfather, we, knowing only six points, in some ways the, the paradox of that was it was, it was easier to take fictional flight um, from not knowing a lot, even though I knew a lot more by the time I had finished. Um, with my with my my father's material, some of the things that had to be changed were things that I knew that readers would never believe. For instance, you know, and this is the wonderful thing about delving back into the past that we all we all most of us know about is you get these reminders of how things were. And, and for me, it's astonishing to think that his generation, when he wrote things down, he would never use the word I. He always referred to himself as yours truly or P-A-Y, which were his initials. Because, you know, the, the, you just didn't use the word I <laughs> about yourself. This was long before, um, you know, the American cult of self-esteem had arrived on these shores, um, which I noticed the Americans are beginning to question and wondering whether self-discipline might be an important element as well. I see in the Atlantic Monthly talking about this sometimes. Um, but that, that's, that's the kind of thing you knew you had to to take out of what he'd written because no one would believe that someone would write about themselves in that way. So that's just a sort of a, one of those challenges. Um, but I also, in delving in there, was what I was really keen, and I think this was another motivation for having a go at uh, fiction, was that I realised there was a lot in my, a lot of expressions in my head that went back a long, long way. <laughs> Um, sometimes almost beyond my memory, if that doesn't sound too silly. But um, I mean, I found, for instance, the, some of it was Scottish, because we grew up with Scottish immigrants around us um, in New Zealand. And, and I had this word, there was a word, for instance, the word skinnamarink, um, which I think means is, you know, a very skinny child. But it just sort of, as I was kind of playing with this, this material and writing this narrative, this word sort of just came came from nowhere, and, and I realised it was 
you know, a Scottish term, and there were a lot, lots of words like that. But also, I realised that my father was a kind of an amazing repository of slang that was was disappearing before our very eyes. Um, and some of the slang he he had got from when he was very young, um, and some of it he didn't he'd inherited from the Americans during uh, World War Two. So. Uh, I mean, there's a, one of the words that comes to mind immediately was, you know, a, a baloney is, is definitely an American term, and he, it was a term he liked to use quite often. Um, and doing your scone, of course, which was an Air Force term, um, was, was, one of, was one of many. And I thought it would, would be fun to try and embed these expressions as I, as I brought them to mind. You, when, you, when it's like anything else, if you try for them they don't come but if you're in a certain space they do actually come towards you and and I thought well the book can be a kind of a um, an exercise in, um, in making use of those some of those expressions as well not to mention the sort of values that um, that seem to have taken such a pummeling in the last sort of 26 years or so in Scotland apart from the um, the sort of observations that I did. I was also um, went to the, some obvious places like the, the bookshops in Edinburgh had wonderful uh, publications that had been done by academics. They looked at um, diaries that had been kept by farmers in that area, for instance, um, over perhaps a lifetime. And sometimes they, these have become the object of scholastic uh, endeavour and, and they, they were just so informative and of course the newspapers uh, back in the, at the time when my grandfather left New Zealand they actually not only carried great detail about sort of harvests and, and what was how many potatoes were being produced in the Mearns which is still a very rich agricultural area but they also uh, used to carry sermons um, and so uh, they, they were probably uh, you know, as a cultural document, they they were very very helpful in trying to get a handle on the sort of country that, he, you know, why did he leave? Because he left Scotland at a time of great prosperity. Um, and um, I also uh, did did some oral history while I was there too, because I knew as a ploughman that you know, I wanted I had to learn a lot more about Clydesdale. And though I found a great horse centre over in the west that a man called Anderson ran in, and uh, yeah, so I sat down with him and talked about Clydesdales, and I talked to a 90-year-old in 1999 about that part of the east coast of Scotland when he was a young man, and I got lots of lovely things about the kind of dichotomy between fisher folk and farmers. I mean, the, the farmers looked down on the fisher people, and they would farming people never married into fisher folk, <laughs> um, even though it was a very prosperous fishing area. Um, and so over time you kind of, you, you kind of build up this picture of, of the society that you can then drop this character into. Um, and um, hopefully provide him with some credibility. Um, I guess the other point I wanted to make about Scotland was that very little seems to have been written about that part of Scotland that certainly that's fictional. Painters go there and there's poets have written about it. There is one exception and that is um, some of you will be aware of the um, the Sunset Trilogy that was written by Grassic Gibbon which is the sort of, he was a man whose real name was Mitchell uh, who was inspired 
by James Joyce um, and Ulysses and wanted to write a, an equivalent book um, in, set in Scotland. It's, it's, although it's only about three miles from the, from the coast, it's very much a rural book. It doesn't really address the coast at all. Its principal character, Chris, I think her name is, is a, is a woman growing up on a farm. Um, the other thing about that book is that the region um, traditionally spoke in the Doric tongue, which I'm told if you know it well, you can you can easily um, negotiate with a waiter uh, in in Holland, in the Netherlands. It's one of those influences that's come into that part of Scotland, and um, it's very <laughs> when you hear it. It's I mean, if you think Glaswegian is hard to hear to understand, this is much more difficult than that. Um, so. It's not a book that's probably really caught fire in New Zealand, but it, it was being taught in the 70s and as, as the kind of great novel of Scotland um, in, in Scottish schools in the 1970s. So he was, he was certainly, uh, I read him, I don't think he had any influence on me at all really, but uh, it's worth mentioning him. Um, I do think uh, though that there were influences from the conservation history which Imelda mentioned before, which come come up in the book, uh, and one of those was sort of understanding um, people like uh, Guthrie Smith, because um, I actually took the, the I was impertinent enough to bring him in as a character when the first uh, when the grandfather figure is wounded and goes to recover in a hospital in London. I knew that I knew that Guthrie Smith had gone. He's too old to volunteer, so he went to London to look after wounded soldiers, um, and so I, you know, had a very deeply troubled moment in this man's life. He talks to Guthrie Smith. He gets advice from Guthrie Smith, and you can kind of imagine what sort of a man Guthrie Smith is fairly easily from um, from having read read his work and read his um, his biography. Um, so, but also the. Um, the Wilsons of the, the Rangitike, whom some of you will be familiar with, um, who are quite an amazing family really. Sir James was a conservative, he finished up as an MP in, uh, in, in government through the First World War, or just perhaps just before the reform government. And uh, he was a farmer, he was a, a, a tree farmer, he was a conservationist, um, and he was also experimenting with with uh, grasses in the Rangitike, deeply concerned about erosion, early water and soil conservation man, and um, one of the people who founded the Forestry League that actually uh, helped push for New Zealand Forest Service, which was founded in 1922. And that, that family um, produced Ormond Wilson, who was, you know, obviously politically at odds with his father being in the first Labour government and one of the more radical members of that government. And um, this, this, that family is still doing amazing things. I could, I could continue about them. And there's a uh, Bob Wilson, there's a biography written on about him recently, which is really interesting if you're interested in natural history and how people were treating the land um, in the 20th century, <coughs> founded the Martin Sash and Door Company, for instance. All, all this kind of stuff is wonderful grist 
um, if you're trying to understand about how families, how people engage with the landscape uh, at that through certain times in, our, in the 20th century. It's also politically, um, that area, still very interesting, I think. It, 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 the last interesting politician that it threw up was Simon Power, who, I, I may not have the whole story, but I kind of got the impression that after one term in Cabinet he was ready to move on. <laughs> um, there are other things from here that really were important. Um, I was lucky enough to be involved in the Vietnam uh, Oral History Project and I had the advantage, I think, of being male and of a very similar age to many of the men that I interviewed. I was privileged to share, uh, it's good to see Paul here today, um, to share kind of intimacy with those men about some of the most painful things that had ever happened to them in their lives. Uh, in ways that it probably never happened before in oral history. And um, although the Vietnam War has nothing to do with World War I or World War II that, that in terms of experience, so different, um, I think there was a kind of, I was writing about um, the war in the Pacific at the time, and I think the sensibility that I was um, privy to did help, did help me, just the sense of camaraderie, um, question of you know trying to stay alive and um, the way in which yeah men talk to one another uh, Kiwi men about things that are very painful um, all that I think was 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 good and in fact I, I I can't imagine writing a novel given my sort of background doing another novel without actually um, doing some oral history I think um, but we'll, we'll see the other sort of influences that, that I think may, I don't think they're influences, but they're things that are, they're touchstones really, I think, more that I would just like to, to allude to quickly and then I'll bring this to a close. Um, when, I th when I wondered about um, romantic coastlines, I realised how much Robert Louis Stevenson had influenced me as a child. And it's just great to think that that wonderful storyteller is still pretty current in our lives even today. Um, and I, I did study Frank Sargison at, uh, in English at university and, and the, his mastery of uh, New Zealand male speak from the 1930s, I mean I never referred to any, anything that he wrote while I was writing the book, but I was, I was very aware of the enormous amount of craft that he had brought to this, so that was a kind of an inspiration, I suppose. Um, and and I've mentioned Guthrie Smith. The only person who, whom I'm conscious of in New Zealand is an author who's actually attempted to deal with Māori and Pākehā um, love affair in quite the way that this story unravels. It would have been Noel Hilliard, that some of you in the audience will remember his Māori Girl, Māori Woman series that came out, I think, in the late 60s, early 70s, um, which I do remember reading at the time. Of course, Morris G stands like a colossus above us all, if we're those of us who <laughs> ever endeavour to write fiction. And Plum, of course, had the three voices in it, um, the, the Plum trilogy. The other um, book that I think uh, had an amazing influence on me 
when I managed, I bought it in a sale when whenever that that when that shop Ferguson and whatever they were Ferguson's down on the yeah they I found a copy a first edition of a book called My Brother Jack by George Johnson. Has anyone read it here? Yeah, did you enjoy it? It's an amazing book, eh? Yeah, and it it does go away from the war and of course gets into sort of post war relationships in Australia. I think it's had an influence on a lot of Australian films that I've seen as well. But there is some stuff about uh, about the casualties of war at the beginning of it. And I, I, I did, again, I didn't go back and read it, um, but I, you know, that was another little kind of seed in my brain while I was working. And it's certainly a book, if you haven't read, it's certainly worth worth reading. But I think, I think the the greatest influence on this book, um, sort of spiritually and, and physically, was definitely my father. Um, and um, I, I, uh, I hope that some of his sort of humour and his sort of kicking against the traces sort of comes through quite strongly <laughs> in the book. Um, I, I just want to refer to one line that he wrote, and I haven't got it off pat. Uh, it's just occurred to me, but He's talking about being bombed for about the 50th time in about six months uh, up in Guadalcanal. And there's sort of there's this particularly big raid, the Japanese, sort of an effort to, this is the one, we're really going to get rid of them this time from the Japanese, this sort of bombing raid. And um, they all pile into this foxhole. And he wrote this line where he, sort of as they kind of got their heads back up again, looked out of the foxhole, and this bomb hit, hit the ground. He, describes a tilly lantern at the far end of the runway and the light goes out with the percussion of the bomb. Yeah, just um, the, the percussion of the bomb puts the tilly lantern out and I thought, now there's an observation of a writer, uh, you know, and uh, thanks to Adam, <laughs> certainly make use of that. So um, do owe him a, a great deal and I think the, the sort of language that, that he was still sort of practising um, even when he died, uh, I owe a great deal to that as well. So, um, in a way, this book is about you know a world that's largely lost. And uh, going to this river book now, uh, as I've just in this phase of completion, wrote in 1986, so I was still in my 30s then, and uh, looking at how much New Zealand has changed uh, in that time. It's just astonishing and, and sort of quite alarming in some ways. It's not all for the bad, I might say, either. Um, I think New Zealanders are learning, for instance, how to um, to live with one another and collaborate in ways that we have never been very good at before. I think we were good at cooperation amongst the like-minded. I think collaboration is a new deal for us, and it's one that I think might get us out of some of the holes we're in at the moment. Um, but it is it is just astounding to me, and it's such a cliche, I know, but to see just how different the world is and what the focus on river, how, how rivers which are a repository for all our culture in a way, how much they've changed in, in this time. So, um, and I do think that rescuing old values, uh, not so much risking, they're still here, but they've been somewhat submerged. Old ways of speech and old ways of seeing the world. I think in a new country, these things are so much more important. 
um, and that amnesia is perhaps the greatest uh, threat to democracy of all. So I think, bless all of you who read and, and, and write, and thank you for your attention. <laughs>